Welcome formally to this uh, new quarter as we study the um, uh, in depth our doctrinal statement. Last quarter we did the first two sections, the one on scripture and the one on uh, God. Uh, and um, the one on God, of course, was about the Trinity and and uh, the nature of God, attributes of God. Uh, this quarter, we're going to be talking more about God, but specifically God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And uh, so today we're going to begin with um, the section three there is section three of the ten sections in our doctrinal statement, fairly traditional categorization of, of doctrines. Uh, so, first of all, Jesus' deity. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, possesses all the divine excellencies, and in these he is co-equal, consubstantial, and co-eternal with the Father. Co-equal, I think you're used to. Consubstantial, you might not have heard very often. What does consubstantial mean? It means having the same substance. Now, when we think of substance, we think of material substance, don't we? But uh, consubstantial is, is a term that theologians, for um, since dating back to the early church, have used to describe the, the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, uh, having the same substance, meaning the same uh, essence, the same, the same, well, all the attributes that we've talked about already. Um, and in the very early church, there were a number of heresies that that uh, developed, and uh, I, I think God allowed those heresies to spring up to basically force the church and help the church to realize and separate truth from error in a very detailed way. And I mean, it got down to words, right? And and this, this term consubstantial rose out of that, and um, uh, it's basically in terms of our study of Jesus Christ, the, the, the point is Jesus is God. He shares in all of the attributes of God, and um, you, like Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I mean, there's no distinction whatsoever. It, th there is a, a diversity of roles, as we've already talked about in the Trinity, but uh, the same essence, the same uh, attributes, um, always has been, always will be God. Okay, so let's take a look at that first passage Actually, we, we heard this song last night. Um, Isaiah 9, 6. Can someone read that for us? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Yeah, um, by the way, for what it's worth, um, there's no comma between wonderful and counselor. There was on the overhead last night. Somebody made an error. <laughs> wonderful is an adjective. <laughs> wonderful counselor. Now, um, musically, it's okay to have pauses between adjectives and nouns. That's all right. But um, it means wonderful counselor. Um, now, Who's this speaking about? Jesus, right? And it refers to him as mighty God, right? 
It also refers to him as eternal father. What does that mean about Jesus? Sorry? He's of one essence with the father, one being. Yeah? The Hebrew is actually father of eternity. Yes. So, which means... That he's always been. He's always been. He's not the father. Yeah. And also has some uh, connection to his role in creation, that he's the father of eternity because he was part of the creation of time itself. Yeah, so he, he's... Um, how things began. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I was going to say um, everlasting. You know, he's from you know, the beginning to the end, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's all what it's about. Um, you know, when we think of father, we think of our uh, who we're from, who we're descended from, right? And so uh, being our creator, uh, Scripture is clear that both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were involved in creation. And um, so this, this prophecy re- referring to the, the coming of Christ, the, the incarnation, the child will be born to us, but he's a child who has always existed. In fact, he's, he's um, the reason we exist. Yeah. Let's go to that next passage there, Micah 5.2. It's another good Christmas-related verse. Can someone read that for us? But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephraim, um, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth come from long ago, from the days of eternity. So how does that figure into the... Um, birth narrative of Christ. Do you remember? He was born in Bethlehem. Born in Bethlehem. That verse is actually quoted, however, in Matthew. Remember the context? The Magi travel to Jerusalem. They make it to Jerusalem, and they ask the religious leaders and actually King Herod, so where is he who is born king of the Jews? Can you imagine how King Herod took that? <laughs> I thought I was king of the Jews. Um, but what was the answer they were given? The religious leaders um, quoted this verse. Where, where is he to be born? Well, he's to be born in Bethlehem, and they quoted it. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth to be ruler in Israel. Now, they stopped there, unfortunately, at least the record of it in Matthew. Um, They knew he was to be born the king of the Jews, the Messiah. They knew he was to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem being the, the, um, the place where David was born and raised, and so he was a descendant of David. Um, But look at that second sentence. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So just like Isaiah 9, 6, a child's going to be born who is from eternity, this one says... His going forth or goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So here again, someone is is going to be born in Bethlehem, who is from eternity. He's always been, right? Um, now. I find it interesting that the religious leaders were very quick to say, oh, well, if, if you're speaking of the Messiah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But they seem not to have understood that this is God taking on human flesh because who else is from eternity past, right? Anyway, definitely referring to Christ. Okay, let's skip down to around the middle, Hebrews 1, 5 and 6. 
for to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Right. So, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. That's a quote. Do you know where that's from? Psalm. Psalm 2. That whole psalm is messianic. In fact, if, um, if we had heard the entire Handel's Messiah last night, this would have been featured. This. So, when we get to the second half, we'll get there. Um, but Psalm 2 so why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed who is his anointed Jesus, Jesus. that's what Messiah means right saying, here's what these kings are saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So they're really belligerent, uh, rebellious toward Christ, God and the Messiah, the Father and the Messiah. And verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. All you kings out there, you think you're big stuff, right? God's laughing at them. I have installed my king upon Mount Zion, my holy mountain, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Um, now, hang on. This is a little tricky. Uh, you start with the, the kings of the earth who are rebelling and scoffing and whatever. Then you get God the Father speaking, you know, laughing at them and, and um, speaking about his installing his king, and then in verse 7, what you get is that king, the Messiah, speaking. You've got several different players here in the, in the uh, dialogue. So in verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He, God the Father, said to me, the Messiah, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's the verse that's being quoted, right? Uh, multiple places in, in the New Testament, but particularly here in Hebrews 1. Uh, and then verse uh, 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Now this is what the Father said to him. And the very ends of the earth as your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware, now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, What's interesting here is God the Father says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, what does begotten mean? Usually when we hear the word begotten, we think someone has um, been born. Right? Does it look like in this context, it's speaking about the birth of Christ? No, it doesn't. What does it sound like? More like coronation. It's all about his royal position, right? And indeed, in the supplemental notes that Diane has, there's that extra PDF on only begotten. 
Uh, well, first of all, let's look at begotten. Um, that word begotten, that's translated here begotten, is the same word that's used for um, someone being born, a descendant of, and, and so on. However, more generally, it means to bring forth, to um, even show forth, declare. Um, and so we read from Hebrews 1.5, that same passage from Psalm 2 is quoted in, in Hebrews 5.5, 5, where it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, uh, but he who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you, and he continues his argument. Um, so Hebrews quotes that twice, and if you go to Acts 13, verses 32 and 33, says, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So there in Acts, the apostles are connecting the today and the begotten with the resurrection. God declaring through the resurrection that he has um, defeated sin and death. And he's opened the way for salvation through Christ. Um, so the use of the word begotten there is different from the term only begotten. You're used to the word only, only begotten in verses like what? John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, that term, only begotten, in the Greek anyway, is um, one word. It's a compound word. It's not just begotten. It's only begotten. It's as a... As a as a term, and it's used, of course, of Christ uh, multiple places in, in Scripture. Um, one of them I want to point to is, again, back in Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 17, uh, says, you know, this is the, the hall of faith uh, uh, that's outlined uh, various people through the Old Testament. And it says, by faith, Abraham, verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, Abraham, was offering up his only begotten son. Hebrews eleven seventeen. What's that referring to? The sacrifice of Isaac, Genesis 22. Uh, Genesis 22 begins... Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said to him, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, very specific, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Your only son whom you love, Isaac. Now was Isaac his only son? Was he his first son? No. Nope. Was he the son of promise? Yes. Yes. He's the the your only um, your only begotten son, and so it uh, Genesis, of course, is written in Hebrew. It doesn't have that term "only begotten," but it's expressing it here in Genesis twenty-two, and Hebrews eleven picks up on that that um, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Um, 
only begotten here uh, when used of Christ and, and as, a, as a picturing of Christ, even uh, when used of, of uh, Abraham and Isaac, is speaking about um, the uh, relationship of the father to the son. It's unique. It's uh, intimate. There's, there's a closeness. It's a special relationship that is not true of anyone else in that father-son relationship. And in the case of Christ, of course, it's always been the case from eternity past that God the Father and God the Son have that unique special relationship such that God the Son is only begotten. There, there is none like the Son of God. And, um, and we have a little bit of a picture of that with Abraham and Isaac. The scripture refers to God having uh, begotten Christ uh, and it's even foretold messianically in, in Psalm 2. Uh, but that's referring not to that special relationship within the Godhead specifically, like only begotten. It's referring to him um, showing forth to the world uh, and, and installing him as king, even in the context of him being mocked by earthly kings. So, I hope that helps a little bit. Um, I'm going to give you some of these extra notes so you can see how both of these terms are used elsewhere in Scripture. And you can refer back to those. All right, well, let's continue. We didn't read Hebrews 1, 8 through 10 yet, did we? No. But as the Son says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. So the <coughs> author of the book of Hebrews there is quoting from two different Old Testament passages to make his point that uh, the son referring to Christ the Messiah the son uh, even from um, the Old Testament scriptures it was it was clear that the Messiah would a be God it says thy throne O God is forever that's taken from Psalm 45 6 and 7 the second passage, Psalm 102, verse 25, Thou, Lord, in the beginning, uh, laid the foundation of the earth. So he was, uh, speaking of the Son, he was very much involved in creation. Right? And he's, he's God, his, uh, uh, his kingdom is forever, and so... Um, the fact that the Messiah would be God incarnate was already announced um, in the Old Testament, but I, you, know, you can't you can't fault the Jews too much because we probably would have um, not been all that alert to the the various passages and so on here. Uh, but some were. Can you think of a few who were very much aware? You remember uh, Simeon and Anna? Uh, now, they apparently had God's help, prophetic help, to put the pieces together. Um, but it was very clear. God had already been announcing uh, the, the the role and, and the and the ministry of the Messiah, and that this was God in the flesh, 
that's that's key. Okay, anything else on that one? We we studied um, uh, the deity uh, evidence in Scripture for the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, last quarter when we talked about the deity um, or the Trinity. But there are some supplement, supplemental notes beginning on page 15 that repeat that and provide the detail concerning um, God the Son particularly, having all the attributes of deity. Now, I will mention next week we're going to look at... Um, something that's called the kenosis. That is, um, the, um, what it means in Philippians 2, where it says that Jesus um, didn't regard equality with God, the thing to be grasped, but did what? Emptied himself. Emptied himself. That's the kenosis. What does it mean that he emptied himself? <laughs> Hang on to next week. Okay? So he has all these, these attributes, but um, in his humanity, Jesus, of course, was fully God, fully man, while on earth, right? Um, took on flesh. Um, he still has a glorified human body, right? Uh, but while he was on earth, confined to time and space, uh, he voluntarily um, entered that human existence, which is confined by, by time and space, uh, even though he's eternal God, he's omnipresent, omniscient, and, and all those things. So that's, it shouldn't surprise us that, that that's hard to get our minds around, but um, Christopher is going to lead us in that next week. <laughs> Easy, peasy. Easy peasy. Okay, let's look at number two on page uh, 14. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. He is worshipped by all the angels of God, given the titles of Lord and God, and is the creator of all things. So very much things that are true of God alone, right? So we should all be familiar with John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And of course, in verse, uh, I think it's 14, that same passage is uh, making it clear who he's talking about when he says the word, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. At the end of Christ's ministry on earth, after he was raised from the dead, of course he appeared to the disciples and Thomas wasn't there the first time he met with them as a group. But, and he says, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not so sure I can get my, wrap my head around all this, right? And unless I see it myself, see and, you know, put my fingers in his side and, and so on, I won't, I won't, um, I won't believe. Well, then, of course, uh, Jesus, knowing that, appeared to him, too. It's like a week later. And Thomas then said, my Lord and my God. Um, probably feeling a little sheepish, <laughs> but he had the right response. My Lord and my God. And how did Jesus, did Jesus rebuke him for calling him Lord and God? No, he accepted the worship of Thomas. Can someone read Acts 20? This is uh, um, an account in uh, the latter part of Paul's missionary journeys where he's on his way back to Jerusalem and he meets with the elders from Ephesus, but not in Ephesus, at um, Mycenae. Is that right? Somewhere down there. 
So be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Yeah, so Paul is giving them counsel, um, uh, marching orders, kind of. But he refers to um, uh, the church as the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so who's, specifically, who is Paul referring to there? To Christ, right? Uh, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Um, you know, we, we sort of read that and say, yeah, that's a no-brainer. But the idea that God purchases us with his blood, um, that would have been a very foreign concept to anybody who was not already introduced to the gospel and the incarnation of Christ, um, which, of course, they had been. All right, let's look at Colossians. A couple of passages here. Colossians 1.16. Can someone read that? For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And then, while we're at it, let's get chapter 2, verse 9, the very next one. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Which in and of itself is hard to imagine. You know, a lot of um, pagan religions have concepts of men becoming gods. But the idea of God becoming a man... Um, it's a little harder for people to conceptualize. And yet he did take on bodily form, but retained all the, um, either all the attributes or all the prerogatives of those attributes. Um, um, yet in bodily form. Amazing stuff, right? Anything else here? Raise some thoughts, questions? Yeah? Um, I can't remember where it is. It says you should worship God alone. He's the only one to worship. But we have the worship of Christ. So, another... Yeah, and... Uh, as we read in Hebrews 1... Um, let all the angels of God worship him. So it's not just us who worship him because he's, he's God. Okay. I like the timing of, of this, uh, speaking of the incarnation of Christ, because we're sort of in the Advent season, right? And um, it's edifying to think through um, not just the significance, but the uh, the grace of God that took the step of sending the Son, the only begotten Son, to Earth as a human being, uh, and, and not even as a um, a fully grown man but as a baby. Um, actually, I want to touch on that a little bit in our uh, questions at the end. On page 17, what would be the impact on our salvation if Jesus were not fully God? What's that? It would mean we believing alive, one thing, the entire Bible would have to be thrown out the window. Okay. Yeah, so it would be, that would be inconsistent with Scripture. But let's say, um, why was it necessary that Jesus be fully God? 
he would not have been capable of not sinning. Okay, he would not be capable of not sinning if he were not fully God. Why was it necessary for him to be sinless? So that he could be our sacrifice. So he could be our sacrifice. Um, why couldn't a man be a sacrifice? Okay. However, let's look at the second one here. What would be the impact on our salvation if Jesus were not fully man? Okay. The fact that he's fully man, he suffered, he went through everything, he felt our pain, so we can actually relate to our suffering because he has been there. He's gone through it and he's given us salvation at all. That's his purpose. He could, he related to us. He went through those uh, uh, the same temptations we have, and yet without sin. Yeah. Christ is referred to as the second Adam. Goes back to the garden. Christ, as a man, showed that Adam didn't have to sin, and so he led sinless life, but in Adam all are born sinners, he could not have a human father. Exactly. So, you know, often when we think of the ministry of Christ, the work of Christ, what we think of is his death on our behalf. And that's key. That's foundational, right? But that's not everything he did for us. A lot of what he did for us was his life, not so much his death. Right? So he lived a perfect life. He had to be, come as a baby. Um, I, the way I like to put it is, like Adam, he and Christ and Adam were the only two who, whose earthly existence began without sin. Adam blew it. Jesus didn't. And his perfect life is the very definition of righteousness. Not only did God put our sins on Christ at the cross, but he put Christ's righteousness, his, whole, his, his um, righteous life, on our account. Right? Um, so... He had to be fully man to shed blood also. Without the shedding of blood, what? No remission of sins. No remission of sins. Now, there's shedding of blood under the Old Testament law with the animals, but what was that role? Picture. Picture, what was that? A symbol to point toward Christ. A symbol to point toward Christ? Temporary. Temporary. What's the word actually used in the Old Testament? The, yeah, it's a type. But what was accomplished by the shedding of blood of the animals? Like a covering of sins? Yeah, atonement. That's, that's, it's a temporary covering until what? The ultimate sacrifice would come, right? Who is the Messiah? Christ. Um, and... You remember what John the Baptist said? Maybe we're going to get there this week or next in, as we travel through John 1. You remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Christ? Behold the Lamb of God, take away the sin of the world. Yeah, behold the Lamb of God, referring to Christ, the, subs the perfect sac sacrifice, the one pictured by the Old Testament sacrifices, who covers over the sin of the world, takes away. And Hebrews reminds us that, that the reason those Old Testament sacrifices had to be done every year was because it wasn't the final solution. It was only a picture of what was to come, right? So um, the, the annual keeping of the Day of Atonement, the, um, 
the regular sacrifices and so on, were partly intended, not just as a picture, but as, as a conviction. Sin is heinous to God. God. Something has to be done for it. Um, it, it, it should have been obvious that this uh, animal blood sacrifice covering wasn't the ultimate solution. But when the ultimate solution came, it would not just cover over the sins, but um, remove them as far as east is from the west. Right. Uh, I saw a hand. Um, would Revelation 5 be a good example of all of that? Maybe. Go ahead and read it. Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated at the throne, a scroll written within on the, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has con conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So he's talking about it's, how Jesus was the only one that was worthy because of the life and the death. Yes. Yeah. Um because that was the marriage contract of the earth. That, that is definitely connected. Okay. <clears throat> definitely connected. But that's possible. <clears throat> that, um, it's referring to Christ um, being the only one worthy to open that seal and whatever, because he had already accomplished his, his mission by living that perfect life and and offering his own body in sacrifice. Um, and nobody else has done that, and so he's able to open those seals and to, to do all that. Right, but, but if he hadn't been fully man and fully God, he wouldn't have been. He wouldn't have, been he wouldn't have accomplished what he had already accomplished. Right. Right. It's all connected. Yeah. Simply, maybe answer fully. Uh, question B: Would it be right to say that uh, in order for God to be fully man, it was for fulfillment of prophecy and for being able to represent us for atonement? Is that a good way of summarizing it? Yeah. Um, then you have to ask yourself: Could he have done that if he was merely a spirit? No. Right. The blood is important. It had to be, you know, the, the animal blood wasn't enough. It had to be human blood by God's standards. And it had to be without spot or blemish. Right? It had to be sinless blood. Um, and so the only way... God could have accomplished that would have been for God himself to come, take on human flesh, live a perfect life, and die a substitutionary death. Yeah. Animal blood was actually tainted by sin, according to Romans 8. They killed each other. There was no death before Adam's sin. So their blood could not ever measure up. Yeah, well, certainly their blood couldn't measure up. Um, yeah, I have to look at that verse because um, animals being distinct from humans in that they're not morally accountable to God the way human beings are. But it said that all creation, because of Adam's sin, and in the millennial kingdom, the animals lie down one another and they don't kill each other. There was no death until Adam said. It also depends on what they mean by creation in that context. Creation all creation. Yeah. All creation was, was contaminated because of sin. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. That contamination. Well, all creation groans, right, in the meantime. Right. And the animal was supposed to be the substitute for every human sin in that moment. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, so the, the first picture of this substitutionary death 
is in Genesis 3, where God killed one or more animals to cover Adam and Eve's shame, picturing the need for um, a blood sacrifice as a, as a payment for sin. And that wouldn't have been possible. I mean, that would, it, if, if the animal blood was enough, then that would end the story right there. There would be no need for that. So it, it's also true, though, that, um, as I mentioned, what, what Christ accomplished was not just the substitutionary death, but also the perfect life. And no animal is going to do that. To, to live a life completely uh, righteous before God. Um, and we are the beneficiaries of his life. Uh, it's, it's the great um, swap, if you will. Our sins go to him and his righteousness comes to us. Wow. So, the only way God... God, God set this plan in motion when? Yeah. It was always, the pl- there was never a plan B. <laughs> right? So, um, there was only one way, at least one way we can understand, that, that could be accomplished. And that is for God himself to take on human flesh live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death, bear the wrath of God against our sins, rise from the dead, proving he's conquered sin and death. And all of that was decreed, put in motion before the foundation of the world. Um, Wow. Was there any reference like time, like from the time that um, Adam and Eve were created, how long they were there before they left the garden? Yeah. Um, Like how long it took for the fall to happen? Or like was time different because maybe they didn't age, but like years... Well, time time was the same then as it is now. Okay. I mean, the... The stars, I mean, the, the sun, the earth, all the, the things that were specifically created to give us some context for time, same then as it is now. Yeah, I'm not aware of any particular passage in Scripture that tells us how long it took for sin to happen. My guess is not very long. Yeah. Although the implication of... The, um God walking through the garden calling for Adam is that, and I think there's a specific verse that talks about that a little bit more in Genesis, but um, the implication is that it was enough time for them to form some kind of routine, but that could have been a week, it could have been a year, we don't know, but clearly there was already a pattern in place that the fall disrupted. We do know they didn't have any children. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking, was yeah. because no children were born, maybe yeah. they should have also gone with a child. What was that? She wasn't with the child when she left the scripture because it says that Adam laid with his wife and she gave birth to. Right. Right. So it it was undoubtedly a short period of time, but we don't know how long. Sarah's Sarah's uh, question or or point was that Jesus didn't die for everyone, but only for the elect. Um, that is a very. Um, uh, strongly held position. <clears throat> Our doctrinal statement doesn't actually take a position on that. No, um, and there are good reasons. Um, many very faithful Bible expositors, uh, theologians, uh, believe that's the case, and other very faithful, biblical, God-fearing theologians, Bible students, believe that's not the case. And so, um, um, yeah, we can talk about what we as individuals think, but we didn't actually take a position on that in the doctrinal statement. Um, Yeah? 
not to muddy the water, but at the judgment seat, great white throne judgment, all are guilty if God had not died for everyone. Could they say that? Yeah, so then it gets into the questions of the... Um, uh, efficaciousness of the solution, the, the sacrifice, the payment. Um, and the reason, by the way, the reason there are um, uh, two major views on that, I'm not sure that there are any more than two, is that there are a lot of scripture passages that seem to be very strong on one side or the other of that question. And it takes a lot of careful review of a lot of passages to um, um, kind of settle where you settle. Can both be right? Um, I, I would propose for you a universal sacrifice but limited atonement because atonement means right with God and only those that come to Christ are right with God. Actually, for what it's worth, I take issue with the word atonement when applied to Christ because atonement actually means covering as we were just talking. What the animal sacrifices did in the Old Testament was atonement. It's very specific. Their sins were atoned for. It means covered, mm-hmm. right? Um, the word atonement is not used of Christ in the New Testament. Propitiation, yes. Yeah. Satisfying God's wrath. Uh, but he didn't cover over sins. He took away the sins. Doesn't it also say the blood covers your sin in the New Testament? Yeah. But the word atonement... It, well, actually, the word atonement is actually more recent than the Greek or the Hebrew that's being used there. Um, anyway, there's a lot of very nuanced issues on that. It's not a simple answer. All right. Um, the uh, first question there on page 17, the interpretation... Assignment is to provide verses that teach that Jesus is eternal, that he has always existed. And we see that, you know, often we would point to New Testament passages about that. But we saw a couple of examples today, even from the Old Testament, and there are others as well. So next week, we're going to continue looking at the role of Christ, uh, the, uh, the incarnation, get us really much in the mood for um, this whole Advent season. Timing works out great. Let's close in prayer.